Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcasts.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcasts.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. Bill Burns of UFO Hunters and UFO Magazine. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about an interview, kind of an upsetting interview that we had on the Paracast a few weeks ago with a certain lady who mentioned the publication of a book by Philip Corso in Italy that has not occurred here. Do you know what she was talking about? You mean Paula Harris talking about uh, um, uh, Corso's book? It's published in Mexico. It's called La Guerra Secreta. It's the secret war. And she's talking about the notes that, that basically she had gotten from Corso's son and his the son's lawyer and I forget the Italian title of the book but uh, Dawn of a New Age and uh, is the English title I have the book I mean there's not any question about this course of legitimate manuscript but I can go into that in phenomenal detail because that was the subject of a major major lawsuit which actually was settled and and uh, but what happened was Here's the background to that story, which you're probably not going to get from anybody else because nobody else is going to tell the truth about it. When Day After Roswell was coming out, it was published um, in 1997, and it was the official launch was at Roswell at the 50th in um, July, like July 1st or 2nd of 1997. And in the, uh, of course, that was funny because I was doing like three jobs at once. I mean, this is a, I'd written the book. That was you know, with Corso, and then uh, so the book was done. Then I was working for Pocket Books for Simon and Schuster for the promotion. I was working with their promotional director, uh, who really wanted me to kind of shepherd the book through the UFO community at, at Roswell. Then I'm also working for the Motion Picture Company. The Motion Picture Company, um, Rosewood Woods Productions, was the company that had licensed Corso's rights in the first place for a motion picture and then sold the book as a way to finance the, the motion picture, get the book going into the public eye. And so I was really working for them as their literary agent on behalf of that intellectual property. And, uh, but also working for Phil Corso, um, working with him because I was his co-author. So here I was and in, in this crowd and I was in Roswell with, with Nancy. And we were, my wife Nancy, and this head kept bobbing up and down in the audience, screaming, and people were pushing her away and pushing her away. Had I known it was going to happen over the years, I would have let the crowd push her away. But quite frankly, so she's bobbing up and down. So Nancy goes over to her and says, you know, what are you, she's screaming, you know, a colonel, and she's talking, and she's speaking Italian. And my wife goes over, she's Italian, and she's speaking with her. And so Nancy says, what do you need, you know? They're over there. What do you need? She said, I got to talk. I'm, I'm from Italy. I really want to talk to Colonel Corso. I'm a rep- reporter. She identified herself as a reporter. So my wife, Nancy, who was actually pretty good friends with Phil Corso, they, they really hit it off. And they're both Italian. She takes Paula Harris over to Phil and says, you, you have to meet her. She's from Italy. She wants to talk to you. She's from Rome. She's, and so she's speaking Italian. Phil speaks Italian. And they became friends. And then when um, Phil got into, and, he, and here's the nexus, within a year, 
the motion picture company and uh, Corso had uh, what I think, in my opinion, uh, IMHO, was a legitimate dispute over the terms and conditions of Phil Corso's life story rights contract. It was a life story rights deal is what it was. And when you purchase life story rights, you purchase them for any medium you're going to purchase them in. So uh, it's for a television show, it's for a movie, it's for a book, it's for a game or something, um, or for everything all locked into one. And that's exactly the deal this motion picture company had with Corso. They had published, they had purchased his life story rights and had published published a book, they exercised uh, their purchase option, um, and were pursuing a motion picture. And in the contract, in the life story rights agreement, there was a clause saying that they were entitled to this particular book, The Day After Roswell, and any and all sequels having to do with Corso's life in, you know, with Corso's life in the military. And they interpreted that to mean that uh, they were entitled to any prequels, which were stories before the day after Roswell, having to do with Corso in Rome. We have a whole manuscript on the American who occupied Rome. And then this big issue of the day after Dallas, which actually became a book that was never published. And any and all story rights, so Corso... Now, wait, excuse me one second. Of course, day after Dallas would be the Kennedy assassination, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so... Uh, it was Corso's role uh, working for Richard Russell on the Warren Commission. That's the book and what he found out, which was pretty stunning. And, and again, you, you could say, well, you know, come on, Bill, this Warren Commission, Roswell, yeah, hey. But I will only tell you, I saw the guy's badge, his, his badge from 1962 and 1963 for Chief of Internal Government Security, working for, uh, working for Eastland, Senator Eastland, James Eastland, Senator Richard Russell. And the book was about what he learned investigating the Warren Commission for Richard Russell. He was really his, his security advisor and his chief investigator, and he worked for Russell. And so he was there for those phone calls with LBJ to Richard Russell about the one bullet, things like that. So, but this issue is Paula Harris. So among the books were a book called I Walk with Giants, which is all about the great people he knew, the great personalities he knew, Eisenhower, Trudeau, Strom Thurmond, Winston Churchill, all the people he met, the Pope, Pope Pius, Pope Pius, all the people he met during his years. So that was that, was that book. And then there was a book which was really wasn't really a manuscript. It was a bunch of individual notes about the various technologies that he worked on. Not Roswell per se. This was not about UFOs. It was about, oh, irradiating meat, for example. You know, it was one of the big chapters. The, um, how Army R&D came to grow and flourish under General uh, Trudeau's leadership. So it was really, it, it, it's more of a military memoir than anything else. But in it, there were things about the Roswell material how he got the night vision goggles from the alien lens over to Fort Belvoir, what Fort Belvoir did, why Fort Belvoir couldn't talk about the UFO thing, why it was such a big... In other words, it was the story behind the expanded version of what was in Trudeau's memoirs are not invented here. Well, during the course of this publicity. Corso is kind of like a rock star at Roswell, right? And Willie Strieber goes over to say a special hello to him. Uh, he's going to be on the Art Bell show, Linda Moulton Howe. Believe it or not, uh, he had his book dog-eared and tabbed and cross-indexed. It's going to be a heavy interview. So all this great stuff is going on. And so uh, he, he meets Paul Harris, who, who invites him to Rome. 
I invite you to Rome to speak to the Italians. We know that you were in Rome. We know that from your book. And Corso was just flattered. He's almost 80 years old, 82, I think, or 81. And he just wants to go to Rome. And, you know, really, he's retired. So they get to be friendly. Well, over the course of that summer, the book is growing and growing. And I guess earlier in the year, one of the things that happened was that this movie company relying on that option for sequels and that clause which I guess reasonable attorneys could interpret in different ways. I mean, what does sequel mean? Does it mean any book that follows Day After Roswell or is the fence? Of course, his life story was circumscribed by his life in the army. So does his life in the army mean that any sequel which does not cover his life in the army is excluded from the deal? Or is that simply a descriptor um, where the real intent of the agreement is um, anything that derives from his having been in the army? I mean, you could, you could see where it's a reasonable disagreement, okay, where it's a legitimate disagreement. That is usually something that a pair of lawyers would work out with respect to each other. Well, okay, fine. I could, I could see if, if I were negotiating that as, as a third party or a mediator or looking to settle it a, as a lawyer, I would say to the other side, okay, fine. Let's just say, for example, we want to avoid court, we want to avoid an arbitration, we want to avoid all the grief. So let's come up with an additional payment. Let's come up with a rewarding, some way to remove the ambiguity. And in so doing, you reform, you modify the agreement, and there's compensation, there's consideration to Corso. Because of that, reasonable attorneys would work it out. Well, these were unreasonable parties at this point. Okay? They were unreasonable. But isn't Hollywood always kind of like that when you have Hollywood negotiations? Things get pretty crazy. It is. On on one level, it is. And and both the movie company and Corso dug in. And I'm in the middle, right? I'm technically employed by the movie company. I'm not employed by Corso. I'm employed by the movie company as their publishing representative. And so uh, they dug in. And I mean really dug in hard. Dug in to the point where as the motion, so the motion picture company, and I was there. I mean, I was with them in New York at Simon & Schuster, um, sold the book day after Dallas. They were thrilled, right? They are happy. Life is wonderful. We get the deal. We get the contract. At this point, Corso feels he's not getting enough money. Well, of course, Corso took money out of his own bank in advance of the contract, right? So uh, there were a whole bunch of financial issues that took place. So uh, the movie company said, well, this is great. Now you're going to have another book, another, you're you're doubling down. Congratulations, Colonel. You're going to be a hit. Well, Corso goes off the wall. He says, this book was not covered in my publishing agreement. My lawyer tells me this book is not covered. This takes place after I retired from the Army. And because it's after I retired from the Army, it's not part of my military history. Therefore, you have no right to sell the book. But thank you very much for doing all this work for me. You know, we'll work something out at year end because you actually represented the book. Look, we can go down this path, Bill, for, for hours. And yes, we can, but here's where Paul Harris comes in. Let's let's cut to the chase here, because I have a a bigger, more important question about Corso's work. Go ahead. So Corso, so Corso is angry. File goes off to Rome, files suit against the movie company. In Rome, he sees Paula Harris and hands her his material and says, "Here, here you go. You know, uh, here, digest this." 
Now, Corso doesn't have the right to convey the, his intellectual property. So what Paula Harris does is she teams up with this guy, Bayada, Maurizio Bayada, whom we sued. And what they do is they claim the Italian language rights the day after Roswell. Well, I hear that those rights were conveyed, and I went, I'm the agent. I'm screaming to Simon and Schuster, hey, they can't do this. Sue these guys. Stop them. So they send a really hostile letter to these guys and say, you cannot do this. If you want to license the rights, we'll license you the rights, which they eventually did. And that shut down Paul Harris to start. Then she takes the book, The Secret War, right, Dawn of a New Age, and she, and she gets this contract Corso dies. He gets his contract from Corso's son and Corso's lawyer to publish the book in various languages. Nobody tells me, right? They publish the book in Rome, and the Italian publisher, the Italian publisher, not only does not pay any money, they don't pay any money. It's like, hello? I know this isn't going to get complicated because we're dealing with a lot of legal ramifications. Yeah, but here's what they did, Gene. They copyrighted the book in their own name after Corso had copyrighted the book in his name in the United States. I get this information. I found it. I find out that Bayada is coming to the United States at the Laughlin Conference. We hire a process server, go into federal court, and sue them. Well, the point of view, so from that point, Paula Harris suddenly feels she's victimized because we sued her. Oh, Paula Harris, you're victimized. You, you were a party to stealing someone's copyright and recopywriting it in another country and then refusing to respond when somebody asked you in the nicest possible terms, hey, let's redo this copyright and how much has the book made, by the way, since you published it? And so she suddenly portrays herself as the victim when, in fact, she was part of copyright theft. All right, before we go further in this, because there are certain things I do want to know about this and David wants to know... Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at the paracast.com. That's news at the paracast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. 
from. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380. 800-715-4380. Or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com. 1-800-715-4380. We're talking to Bill Burns of UFO Hunters and UFO Magazine. You know, dealing with all these legal ramifications is very fascinating, but of course, for most listeners, you know, it's... Okay, let's get to the point. The point is here, this book, will it ever see publication in the United States? Yes, when I get around to it. I mean, quite frankly, what would happen was, just to say how it's going to see publication, That's that's this is the answer to your question. First, we settled with those guys. So, you know, that was that. So that's over and done with, you know, we settled with them. We're friends with Paula Harris. She may still gripe about things, but... So be it. The fact is we settled. That's one. Two, we got the international rights back that had been conveyed to them, and I and Hami Masan and I sold the book to Planeta Publishing in Mexico. It's called La Guerra Secreta, and it's in print. We'll deal with that later, too. I got the impression that there are more things involving Phil Corso's involvement with UFO mystery than just what was in Day After Roswell. Oh, sure, because the publisher didn't want them in. Let's talk about those events, forgetting the ramifications, why the publisher did this, that, and the other thing. What is it, then? Tell us things about Corso's involvement with UFOs that aren't in that book that we really should know about. Well, these are stories, and the person who, and the fact, when we did the last shoot, by the way, for UFO Hunters, plug, 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 episode 13, was Area 51, and our guest in both the 12th episode and the 13th episode was my friend George Knapp, and, uh, cause he investigated needles, and we were in needles, that's a stunning episode, by the way, and, um, we investigated Area 51 and Bob Lazar and John Lear, well, in that, Oh, God. George? Oh, I'm sorry. I just got an aneurysm. Oh. Well, I'm... don't get too much of an aneurysm because oh. remember the John Lear story. The John Lear story spans something like five different stories. And oh. this is almost like you pick them. Or which one you want to put your foot on in terms of this will hold up or which you say is just off the wall. I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll get, remember, John Lear comes out of that whole 1980s, the dark side of UFO stories, right? Back in the 80s with the aliens sucking your souls. The guy's a CIA lackey, for Christ's sakes. Come he, on. Absolutely. He, he admits he's CIA. He totally so admits he's a CIA t- lackey. It's just, oh, okay, it. fine. Go ahead. He admits it. I mean, yeah, he's not lying about that. He says, I work for the CIA. I've got all these clearances. Here's a big, uh, like, letter of thanks from Congressman Lawrence, uh, Laura Sanchez in Orange County thanking me for my work. I was part of the October surprise. I mean, he goes on and on. No dispute about a CIA background. And then you say to John, are you a disinformation specialist? He said, hey, I went to the area beside Area 51 with Gene Hoff, Bob Lazar, George. We saw the stuff. He said, and I've been talking about this stuff for a long time, and we've been seeing it. So, I mean, and then he shows you the videos of the craft. There it is. Lights in the sky, Area 51, a young Bob Lazar, 
There's Gene Hoff, there's Jackie Lazar, Bob's wife. They're the ones stopped in the desert. They're the ones this. And the story totally comports with what uh, George Napa said, with what Art Bell has said, with what Gene Hoff has said, and what Bob Lazar himself has said. So, I mean, it's not as though he's going off the wall and saying they were beamed aboard a UFO. Uh, so there's that part of it, and that's what we were interested in, quite frankly. That was the issue. I mean, he did tell me a whole lot of other stuff. Some of it you could say is completely lunatic. Some of it you could say, well, you know, maybe the guy heard something somewhere that makes Okay, but sense. where's Phil Corso get into this? Because we're into well, Bob Lazar, we're into George in. Knapp. No, Phil Corso gets in through the whole George Knapp connection. He was at... In Nevada, in back in the early 19, uh, 1990s, 93, I think, 94 maybe, and he's talking to George Knapp about things like the alien in the cave, the time ship, his conversations with Edward Teller, his conversations with, who's the other person? Oppenheimer. I think uh, there was another person, too. Yeah, let's uh, throw every buzz name out into the bucket because that really, you know, increases the credibility of this whole bucket of bleep yeah all right well, whatever no i mean the fact is there was we know from the records themselves and i've seen the records and there anybody can get them that in army r&d there were a series there was kind of a brain trust of advisors that and i'm trying to think of the other name it's not up there's a whole there's another name there which is you know i'm sorry i can't think of it but it starts with an o well, there's Von Neumann. I mean, you've got him as well. Look, again, we can throw all the names into the No, but bucket, there was somebody uh, else. Anyway, I always confuse him with James Oberg, believe it or not, but who, who said to Corso, and he said it to him with real kind of a sense of authority, according to Corso, that what you saw in the desert really was not a spaceship, but a time ship. And Corso was saying, well, how do you know that? What do you mean it's a time ship? What, what, the, what, what does that mean? Well, had not this same story gotten to Wilbert Smith in Canada and had not and I had heard the same thing from now, other Now, let me explain just to listeners here before we throw any more names out the window here. Wilbert Smith at one time headed the UFO research project in Canada years and years and years ago. Okay, yes, go he got a grant from the Canadian government to do that because when he was in the transportation department or something, uh, he had stumbled across some of the information that came from Oppenheimer, and he writes about that. And Oppenheimer told him that the UFO secrecy was more secret and bigger than the Manhattan Project, and that's what really excited uh, Wilbert Smith. And he wrote a lot about that, and he died in 1962. But it was Wilbert Smith who was talking about time ships as well. And um, so it was this person, uh, again, his name I forget, who had said to Corso in Army R&D, well, you know, there, there is thinking that it is not really an extraterrestrial spacecraft, that it's really a time ship. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. But that was one of the things that was not in Day After Roswell, because the publisher wanted to keep it as a spy story more than a UFO story. So did Corso, by the way. Then there was this other issue of the alien in the cave. And that's another story that did not make it the day after Roswell, the alien in the cave. I think there were a few others, but that was Okay, that was the one alien in the cave. Tell us about the alien in the cave. Corso, as you know, was, and this is a matter of military record, there's no dispute about this. Corso was working as a battalion commander of, I think it was a Nike missile battalion, testing at the Army section of White Sands, which was Red Canyon in New Mexico. And he had come to this after his stint as a military security liaison 
in the Eisenhower White House. He was never on the National Security Council. That was, I could get him to a, a three-hour riff on the nature of the affidavit he signed. I'm not going to do that. Okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, but it was an affidavit that he was not competent to sign. It doesn't hold up. Anyway, and so he was not the National Security Council. He shouldn't have signed the affidavit. Any attorney who had done uh, legitimate research and had read the book would have known that he wasn't on the National Security, the National Security staff. And after he spent five or so years in the Eisenhower White House as a staffer, as a military staffer, he was released from that obligation. He was given his own command as a lieutenant colonel of a Nike missile battalion to train the battalion and then go to West Germany on the border, and that was where he would set up shop and be one of the frontline defensive units against the Soviet tank invasion. And there's a whole military story about that, too, but he was in charge of his own radars at Red Canyon. And uh, he would be given these strange orders. Now, had I not heard this same story, which you yourself will hear on UFO Hunters coming up in November, the strange story from a highly placed individual, whose name I will divulge, um, about his experience doing the exact same thing Corso found. I would say, okay, fine, it's only one person. But Governor Fife Symington told me personally, James Fox and I, the same exact story about when he was a second lieutenant in the Air Force uh, back in the 60s. Anyway, Corso was given orders to shut his radars down. It's like these strange times, 11.52.30 seconds, shut them down, and then you could turn them on again at 11.37 and 45 seconds. Corso was saying, it's like a train schedule. You know, it reads like the Northeast Corridor, the New Jersey Transit train sketch, right Metro North. That's what it reads like. It's stupid. What, you know, trains come in at 11.43, they, they, their next stop at, a, you know, 12.02. What's going on here? So, Why so what, yeah, what schedule? was it? Right, what was it? So what Corso does is he tells his sergeant, you know, if you want to wait till 11.32 instead of 11.31, you know, nobody's going to make a big deal. So the sergeant gets the message. And, of course, leaves the radars on for another minute, minute and a half, two minutes. And they see strange radar tracks that do not comport with anything they can recognize as aircraft. And it's an anti-aircraft missile battalion. So these guys identify aircraft. That's the job. And they target the aircraft with radar. So, therefore, they know what an aircraft is and what a meteor is. Okay? This doesn't comport with anything, and they say that the tracks are intelligently guided. These are not random aerial phenomena, so like a falling star. Corso sees these, and he makes tapes of these, and they're consistent, and they only track on radar during the times when he's supposed to shut the radar down. These are videotapes? What are we talking these about? These are whatever tapes you make on radar. Okay. This is 1957. Well, you didn't have videotape in 57, did you? You didn't have videotape, but, but they were able to make radar traces. They were able to keep the radar. There was some way to keep the imaging. Okay. To record the imaging from the radar screens, and he's able to, and they're able to do it. That was common, I think. In fact, the person who should talk about that is Gary Schultz, who did the work on Stephenville radar. But anyway, or Glenn Schultz. So, he's, so he, he sees these things, right? And he's basically been told... You didn't see anything, nothing happened, end of story, nothing is on your screen. And he says, you know what, I obey orders. But he knows what he knows. So that story is not there. But 
He's now fascinated by what he's seeing on radar. What's going on out in the desert? He, he's seeing stuff. He knows it's there. Right, right, lot, right, right. And, right. So... He begins to take his military observation plane. He's not a flyer. He's got a pilot. They take some either a little Cessna or a Piper Cub, whatever, a uh, high wing over the desert to check on the range. And he's flying over the, the missile range, and he sees this black object on the desert floor. And you know what the desert out in New Mexico looks like, scrub, chaparral. And he sees it there. It's a hot day. And he says, this is crazy. This is insane. What is that? Fly me back. They fly him back. He takes his staff car out goes into the desert, and he sees this object, this kind of egg-shaped elliptical object sitting on the desert floor. And it's kind of shimmering, and that's a hot day. It's one of these brutal days. And it's shimmering in the sunlight. He goes to touch it, and it's cold, and he can't make out what is this thing. And then he looks at it, and as he looks at it, it, it disappears. Now, laugh all you want to, but then, you're, uh, then you hear from Air France pilot Charles Dubac, right? He was at the National Press Club last November, uh, in November of 2007. Charles Dubac talking about the same exact thing. He's seeing a brown disc-shaped object hovering over the defense ministry outside of Paris. He sees it, and it disappears before his eyes. Before the show disappears before your eyes. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're talking to Bill Burns of UFO Magazine, UFO Hunters TV show on the History Channel. And we're talking about... Experiences involving Philip Corso that did not make their way into the day after Roswell. Okay, we have the disappearing UFO. Disappearing object. Okay. I didn't say it's a UFO because it wasn't flying. Okay. It just disappears. Fine. Corso now is really shaken. He's never seen anything like this in his life. He doesn't know what it is. It's cold on a hot day. It disappears before his eyes. What is this? So what he does is, and he's, he's dizzy now. He's, he doesn't feel well. Kind of totally disoriented. So there's this cave over and over. You know, there are a lot of caves. If, if, if you know that part of the desert, there are all these little hollows and caves. And I'm not saying he goes spelunking someplace. I'm saying there are places where you can get shade. So he goes, tucks into a little cave inside of a hill. And he wants to get water from these underground streams, get some water, get something. He didn't expect to encounter this. And he sees this strange humanoid figure in the darkness can't describe it he just knows it's a figure in the darkness it's not wearing an insignia it doesn't say live long and prosper i mean he's just talking about he sees a strange figure it is he didn't say that it was a, a, a little gray he didn't describe it as a reptile he just said it was a strange figure with a humanoid shape 
he pulls his sidearm, carries his sidearm, pulls his sidearm, and he basically, you know, it's like stand and deliver, friend or foe, you know, whatever you say to something that doesn't belong in a restricted military area, which this was. And he senses more than hears that he's being told, put away your gun. You don't need your gun. And Corso, I mean, he, he basically, he had a sense of humor, but he was also a negotiator because he, he basically, you know, says, I mean, what's in it for me? You know, why would I do something? You know, I don't know who the hell you are. You're in a restricted area. What are you, friend or foe? Don't know who you are. Identify yourself. Uh, I'm not going to put away my gun unless you tell me what I'm, you know, why? Why should I do that? And so this entity, whatever it is, basically says to him, your world if you can take it. Now Corso is really interested. He says, what is this thing saying my world if you can take it? And that's really the extent of the conversation. Corso puts away his gun. This entity disappears, whether it goes out of the cave or not. And Corso basically is so tired, he basically is in a state of physical collapse. He falls asleep, wakes up hours later, goes out to his staff car, it's there, the sun is going down, drives back to the base, and keeps his mouth shut. He, Herman Oberth, he does go back and he does contact Herman Oberth, who was on the, on the um, Foreign Technology Brain Trust, and he asks Oberth about the object he saw, and it's Herman Oberth who says to him, uh, uh, you saw a time ship, you did not see a flying saucer. This series of stories never got into the book. Okay, but why would they say it's a time ship rather than a craft from another planet or another dimension? Why? I, I specifically asked Corso about this, and here's where the story really takes an interesting twist. Oberth tells Corso, again, this is not in Day After Roswell, Oberth tells Corso that the issue for these things isn't so much space travel. You know, I'm, the fun is going to be when, when Biedney screams that this thing isn't about space travel as much as it's about pulling space and time into itself. Now, this is way, like, beyond Corso's pay grade now. You know, like, what do you mean pulling space and time into me? This, this, this makes absolutely no sense. And Oberth says that what we know, and it's the what we know that really is exciting, what we know, and all this takes place, by the way, in the 1960s, okay? What we know is that somehow, whatever these things are, and boy, he knew a lot for saying whatever these things are. Whatever these things are, they're able to manipulate space and time in such a way that they don't travel through space and time. Space and time travel through them. I didn't understand it at the time. Corso didn't understand it at the time. After Corso died, it's like 98, late 98, I think, we sit down with another person from the Navy whose name is George Hoover. And George Hoover was the naval officer who was asked by ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, to investigate the Philadelphia experiment. I know, I know, I know. Now, now you're raising all sorts of red herrings here, I guess. Well, it's, uh, and I'm going to tell you the red herring right away. The red herring is there was no such thing as the Philadelphia experiment. So, so let's get that out of the way. Well, you know but, what? Just very quickly, we really should tell people that there was a movie called The Philadelphia Experiment. There was a book called The Philadelphia Experiment about supposedly involving experiments in invisibility during World War II. Let's not get into the ramifications and all the side issues, okay? Right. But the invisibility part of it, they were testing a way to make 
U.S. naval vessels invisible to proximity fuses that the Japanese had on their underwater mines in Japanese home waters. So it's not invisibility, a cloaking device. Forget the cloaking device. No such thing as a cloaking device. Well, there is now, but back then there wasn't. So this was not a cloaking device. It was an electronic cloaking devices because what sets off a proximity fuse on an underwater mine? What are ships' hulls, especially ships' metal hulls? What are they? They're huge electronic fields, right? They're magnets. They're batteries. If you know what a ship is, even wooden hulls disintegrate because of um, electric current going through them. Electric current goes through ships' hulls, and they generate a huge electronic envelope in the water. That presence of an, electro of an electric current in the water, and water is a great conductor of electricity, as we know, sets off the proximity fuses. What would happen if you could demagnetize a ship's hull so that you reduce its electrical field so that the ship can get closer to mines and see them so as not to explode them in Japanese home waters. How do you demagnetize tape? You use a degausser, right? Well, so the Navy was experimenting in 1943-44 in the Philadelphia Navy Yard with these huge degaussing machines. How do we know? Admiral Arlie Burke wrote all about it. So that degausser generates a huge amount of power. It melted the superstructure on the USS Eldridge, and these two sailors got burned into the superstructure. They were, this was a top-secret experiment, by the way. They didn't want the Japanese to know. My God, you're, you're coming up with a way. This is like Navy stealth, and you're coming up with a way. You're not going to tell the Japanese. You're not going to tell the New York Times. So they actually send the Eldridge down the intercoastal waterway in fog, to Norfolk, Virginia for a refit and to get the sailors, the poor sailors, out of the hull. They're dead at this point, but still, it was not an easy death. Well, this one person who was there by the name of Carl Allen or Carlos, or Carlos Allende, he had two names, tells this story to science fiction writer Ray Bradbury. Still alive. Ray will tell you the story. Lives in Venice, California. That story became fictionalized. That was the Philadelphia experiment. It was a hoax. Well, okay? Look, okay, that's all good and fine. I just, I get to ask a question. I've been quiet here for I don't know how long, 40-something minutes. Which for you is amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Now, let's take a meta step backwards. Mm -hmm. Corso's story about seeding alien technology to corporations to be reverse engineered. Here, guys, let's play a game for a moment. Let's take Apple's newest MacBook laptop and let's put it in one of the Timecraft and send it back a hundred years mm -hmm. and give it to the world's leading scientific mind 100 years ago. Let's, let's go find Tesla. Okay. And let's hand Tesla a MacBook and say, here, Nikolai, here's technology from a hundred years out. Figure out what it is. The man who invents, who discovers AC current doesn't know what the hell to even plug this thing into because there is nothing to plug the MacBook into. Well, let's just say that its battery is charged. So he's got, you know, his two, three, four hours of time on it. So now here is Nikolai Tesla with a MacBook in front of him. Tell me, Bill, tell me, Gene, how productive is Tesla going to be even figuring out what the hell he's looking at, much less how it works? Ah, uh, and here's the answer to your question, David. Yeah. Of course, that didn't happen, but here's what did happen. It's 1947, and Truman now has 
or knows where the uh, the wreckage of at least one of the craft that crashed at Roswell was. Do we know the craft crashed at Roswell? If you believe Walter Howe's affidavit, yes. The let's craft assume for a moment it did. Okay, let's not go off okay, and so let's, okay, so gonna, okay, so all these are gimmies now. You're right. going to give me the craft at Roswell. You're going to give me that's sure. a real story. Now, sure. so there's this wreckage. Right. So you're right. A lot of that stuff, by the way, is, you know, I mean, I can tell you with absolute certainty that people, let's say at Grumman, are still scratching their heads over that, okay? Because your story, because your hypothesis is absolutely correct. Here's a machine that, and, and, you know, as simple as a MacBook Air, and they can't figure out what the hell it does. We don't know why. But Truman says, why not find, because he's, you know, hey, the guy made hats, right? Um, he didn't make computers. So uh, Truman says, look, I don't know what this stuff is, okay? But What's the lowest common denominator of this technology? Whatever it is, figure out the lowest thing, okay? The base thing. I don't know what it is. Find people that are working on something similar and give it to them. That's the model. So let's say that Nikola Tesla were working on an advanced, are working on some kind of computer, even if it's analog, and he sees something that does what he can do. He doesn't need, he doesn't need to plug it in because there is no AC current. What he needs is a battery. It's got a battery. He knows what a battery is. And he's like, I get the battery. Okay, it's, there's a screen. I even can get the screen, right? Because let's say it's 1930 now. He's still alive. So I get the screen. I get the battery. I've seen screens. I suppose okay. he gets the keyboard too. So he gets the keyboard. They okay. have typewriters. Okay. So so far he gets some things, and he knows when he hits something on the keyboard, it turns up on the screen. Okay, that's good. So he can get stuff. So he can figure out the low, the LCD, the lowest common denominator of that device. Well, the lowest common denominator supposedly in the craft was integrated circuits or, or some kind of circuitry that was part of the craft itself. They didn't have wires per se. They had optics, right? But it was not the old porcelain wire from the 1940s. So they show this kind of plasticized debris to various laboratories. Among those laboratories is Western Electric. And at Western Electric are Bertain and Shockley, who for 10 years have been banging their heads against the wall, trying to figure out a way to get an electron flow without a filament. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Bill Burns of the UFO Hunters TV show on the History Channel and also UFO Magazine. Now, 
What season are you into in UFO Hunters, right away? On Wednesday, October 29th, and for the next three, four months thereafter, on Wednesday nights on History, 10 o'clock Eastern, 10 o'clock Pacific, 9 Mountain and Central, uh, on History Channel, you will find Season 2 of UFO Hunters, and the um, one and our first episode is the episode in uh, Tinley Park, the Tinley Park Lights. Our second episode is Kokomo, and we're doing Tinley Park, Kokomo, the Aurora Airship Mystery Crash, the real Roswell, UFOs in the Heartland, the Milstead, Illinois, and, 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 and Holland, Michigan. Uh, we go to England for the British Invasion. We go to England for the MOD files. We are at Area 51 with um, George Knapp. We are in Needles, California, for the recent uh, crash of something there with George Knapp, and that was in May of this uh, May of 2008. And we are all over the country. We're in Phoenix, where we met Eugene for the Phoenix Lights. So um, yes, you did. Yes, you did. By the way, we actually recorded a session. Is that actually going to be? I have to get that session. I Gene. Uh, Eugene, who was the sound guy, oh, I don't know where he is. So we changed sound guys because Eugene got another job. Typical of traveling movie crews. When we went to England, we had a different sound person who lived in London. He was there. So uh, Eugene got another job, went off doing music videos, which was his main job. And uh, so I know that the sound tapes at the office, I've, I've got to get them, and I can get them to you when I get that radio show. But... Anyway, so that's what happened. Okay, so let's go back to... Wednesday nights. Okay, Wednesday nights, History Channel, UFO Hunters. Let's go back to the story here. So basically, they're getting the low-hanging fruit, the stuff they think they could possibly reverse engineer or figure out. They're not dealing with the stuff that is way beyond their technology. But I still am not understanding here, and I'm not getting my head around... Time travelers. Maybe they have crafts no, 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 that will be no, like. No, no, no. Let's answer Dave's question. Yeah, Dave's question is. I think Dave's question is the probably. If you're going to critique something like this, Dave's issue is the big issue, and that is you're dealing basically with the Geico cavemen here, right? What are they going to do with fiber optics? What the hell is fiber optic to these guys? They don't even know what optics are, right, Dave? And that's what you're saying. Well, so what they did was. No, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa! Stop. Okay. Rewind. The development of fiber optic technology had started in a crude state, actually, in the 1870s. That's so, my point. That's my point. No, uh, no I, so, yeah, I know what I'm talking about to some extent here, okay? But I gave the example of taking a laptop back 100 years. Yeah, but they where didn't there do was, that. They didn't, I mean, if that were the case, then oh, your analogy would be right. This makes no sense. They didn't do that. They went to the very places... That, that was the, the job in 1947, and they get in 1961. They took it to the very places where that technology maybe wasn't in any kind of a working state, but the technology was, let's say, under research. That's where they went. So they took this plasticized circuitry, the silicon circuitry, to Western Electric because they knew that under various defense contracts, that Western Electric Bell Labs had with the Army. They were developing new protocols for communications. Among them was something called solid-straight circuitry based on a device that was later to be called the transistor. But, but again, Bill, you're making huge assumptions here, and mm -hmm. I don't agree with I absolutely categorically do not agree with them. You are assuming what, that what they found... No, well, I'll tell you what the assumption is. You're assuming they found something 
that looks like a chip. You're telling me that you know that that was integrated circuitry? Because let me finish what I was going to say. We're talking about taking something, a laptop, a hundred years back. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fair assumption if we're going to make assumptions, given what we have note, what we have seen, what we have been able to document about how these craft move, that there's a good likelihood we're dealing with a technology that's not a hundred years past where we're at right now, but maybe is a thousand years, maybe. 10,000 years. That's correct. That's, I, that, that may I, I, I that may be the case. That may be the case. It's an assumption. It may be the, I'm guessing it's more than 100 years, even if at that point time makes sense. But uh, again, I'll make an assumption that we're dealing with a species that is much older than we are. Well, and, and, uh, and that's an amazing well, assumption, too, because I could disagree with that and say that well, uh, that species is us from the future, which is really what I believe. But That's entirely possible. I think that there's a good possibility. I don't know if I'd give it a probability, but a good possibility that there is truth to that. Okay. But, but still, if we, if we make that assumption, I'm still having a hard time figuring out how you could assume that what was recovered was indeed what we would today call an integrated circuit. Okay. Or what, or what was found were actually fiber optics. Well, these might have been, because I, I never saw them. I only am working from descriptions. Right, sure, sure. These might have been the aspects, pieces of things that were in a much more complex, at least if you go by what Lazar says, a much more complex integrated technology. Okay, Why should we believe Lazar? I'll be happy to answer this question, at least as, as well as I can, then go to why we should believe Lazar, because I do in many respects. But the issue of what they took, what I'm saying is they didn't say, here's a flying saucer, guys, um, you know, invent integrated circuits. What they said was, here's a bunch of debris that came out of this, okay? Can we find something that is the lowest common denominator in this debris? And from this, if there are people working on, let's say, the primitive stage of this technology or a very primitive device, can you see something here that outlines a path for you to go to um, maybe leapfrog various steps you would have taken but now won't take because you're seeing this. And according to the story from 1947, that's exactly what happened with respect to Britain and Shockley who were not able to figure out the secret to the base of their transistor when they, they didn't see a transistor, Dave. I'm not saying there was a transistor in the wreckage. Mm -hmm. I'm saying when they saw the components and they were able to break down the components that they had in front of them from the craft, they realized that one way that these entities, that this technology was able to control the electron flow was with a certain way of doping the silicon with arsenic. Okay, that's that's the story that I heard. Yeah, but you know what, if I'm looking here, if you look at today's computer chips and then maybe you extrapolate that to 100 years distant or 50 years from now, would they even be able to use their microscopes to see what they did? And that is my problem with this story. Okay, that we have the same problem. My problem is, let's just take your analogy. Why would a craft from maybe a 1,000 years in the future, right? Let's take a 1,000 years. I think it's closer to 100 years, but fine. 100 years in the future. Why would a craft, and this is my big problem with this day after Roswell story. I'm not saying that I'm, a, I'm like a 
like a cult believer here. I'm saying I have problems with it too. My problem is why would a craft from a hundred years in the future employ technology that we're beyond now? We're beyond that technology now. Right? The transit I mean things like the integrated circuit, we are so far beyond various aspects of that that if they're the same entities that crashed in Roswell and they saw our stuff They'd say we're the more advanced civilization. Well, just, just go back to Dave's analogy here about the MacBook, MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, any one of them going back 100 years. Forget about that. Take it back to 1947 and see what they come up with. You're exactly right. Although in 37, I would say that there were scientists who could have imagined. Yeah, I think that if they saw this in 37 or in 1940, they would be able to say, wow. Okay, here are things we can do. They would be able to break down the components in an integrated circuit. They would understand what the switches were. They'd be able to figure out a lot from seeing it. And that's what I think happened with the transistor. That at least in that one case, they didn't give them a working transistor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying from a chemical analysis of what was in that craft, they were able to realize how because electrons are electrons, no matter where you are in the universe, that they were able to figure out how to control an electron flow. That's because in a few months after Bell Labs received that material, there was a working transistor. By the, by the following year, by 48, there was one patent. By 49, there was a commercial patent. Yeah, what I'm saying no. is mm. that it wasn't... Mm -hmm. but, but, but look at the 10 years these guys were working absolutely hitting brick walls. And Dave, if you go back to their story, the Britannian Shockley and the Transistor, if you go back to that, there are no workbench notes from the 1930s or the 1940s. The workbench notes appear magically in the late 1940s, and those two were reverse engineered. The device that, what I'm suggesting now, they were able to develop from taking a peek at what was in some of the wreckage from the Roswell craft. But now, you said something, Bill. You said you don't think it's a 1,000 years from the future. You said 100 years. That's my that's your guess, Dave. It's like you're guessing it's a 1,000 years. There's no, I mean, it's the same thing. I'm guessing it's really a, 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 hundred, a couple hundred years. I don't think it's a 1,000 years. Are you saying that in 100 years we have uh, some kind of genetic engineered being that looks like a gray? I'm saying we can certainly years? have that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think that's impossible. I think that we are a lot closer to that. Look at the technology. I mean, it's technology you can get your head around, can't you? I don't think we're as far advanced as you don't think we can grow. No. I believe that right now, I believe that right now, let's say ethics laws, notwithstanding, okay, we're not talking about dealing with any kind of religious organization with, you know, with uh, organized I religion. I got it. I got it. No, I got, got it. it. Yeah. Moral issues aside. Stem cells, we can probably grow complete human beings from various types of stem cells if all the rules were relaxed and we could clone the hell out of them, humans and pigs, humans and this, humans and that, we could probably grow, right? Victor Frankenstein can probably grow a human being in a lab and having grown that human being in a lab can clone the daylights out of it until we basically have a Will Smith movie. I'll tell you, the thing that bothers me about this is back to the time travel paradox which is if you go back through time and you change history, because certainly if your craft crashes and the wreckage is found by the primitives and the primitives can take some of it and reverse engineer even a small part of the technology 
and therefore change history. The slightest thing you do can change history. Yes. So where are we with that? Gene, that... you're a science fiction writer. Finish your story. Okay, so if we change history, we could look at the possibility that every time we do something like this, we're creating a new future. Or therefore, maybe that future is preordained. Preordained. Therefore, so if we create a new future, then the future that we create is not the future that existed when these beings came back through time. Keep going. So what do you then have to do? Okay, so if you change the future, then maybe there is, for example, a time travel. This goes back to science fiction. There is a time travel organization that exists solely to repair the damage done okay. by visitors to the past because they screwed up. They exactly. made a big mess. And therefore, maybe we're seeing now craft that's coming here to fix that. But then why are we inventing this entire scenario that this is time travel? Why can't it be from Zeta Reticuli? Why can't it be from another dimension? Why does it have to be time travel? I don't understand that. Why does time travel have to be in this dimension? Um, uh, given why does time travel have to be involved at all? Right. What I'm saying is, well, what I'm saying is, I believe that at least from what I've heard, it's time travel only. Well, I think it has to be involved because if you're if you're able to curve space, you're able to curve time. If you're able to to drag space into you, and this is all speculation. I don't, I don't have any mathematical formulas for this. I don't know that it's true, but I just know that from just know that from the story from let's say a Bob Lazar, you could. Who'd about that? All right, we'll get into Bob Lazar in the second hour. I want to talk about that. But okay, let's just get our heads around this. There could be another theory, too. Who first wrote about this story, Gene? Who first wrote about this? Exactly what I'm saying to you. There is a very, very famous. It's, I would say it is like the seminal work of, of um, kind of naturalistic science fiction covering this by someone who I believe knew that this wasn't fiction. It's Foundation and Empire, and it's Isaac Asimov, and according to at least some of the sources, Asimov knew that what he was writing wasn't really fiction, but it was a great story, and it's true. When it came to things like UFOs, though, he was regarded as one of the early skeptics. Of course he was. So was Carl Sagan. So is um. I, uh, so are many of these people. Look at uh, Stan Friedman's work on on MJ12. Whether you believe it's an MJ12, not an MJ12, I don't care about the name of the organization. But what Stan said about this person Menzel and this person Menzel, one of the great debunkers, the skeptic that he would ruin careers of people who even mentioned the word UFOs. What was Menzel doing? He was on the UFO research group. And I think Stan's work on that, Stan Friedman's work on that, is one of the best books in the field of ufology because, I mean, uh, he really goes into the backgrounds of these people, the Vandenbergs, the, the, uh, the Menzels. The, uh, he just goes into the backgrounds of these people, Vannevar Bush. And, and Vannevar Bush invented hypertext, for God's sakes, back in 1947. He goes into this, and he really kind of shows that there were people capable of being on this group. There are documents that support that. And this guy, Mendel, literally, who was destroying careers, was part of this group. So I'll tell you what, say, let's at that point say we'll talk more about this with Bill Burns on hour number two of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, Send it to 
news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're back with Bill Burns on the Paracast talking about visitors from the future, about reverse engineering. Let's talk about Bob Lazar. Okay. All right. Now, Bob Lazar is someone who a lot of people feel is just a crank, a crackpot, that his alleged credentials can't be verified, etc., etc. So what's your spin on Bob Lazar? I'm going to go along with George Knapp on this. I think that Bob Lazar, uh, he, he did do the research on Bob Lazar. He was able to verify some of the credentials that Lazar did work at Alamogordo, found his name in the registry at Alamogordo. The guy was not sweeping up the cafeteria at Alamogordo. He was working there. He had a very natural ability. And so Knapp did, did some incredible research into Lazar's background because Knapp is a skeptic. I mean, people think, oh, George Knapp talks about Lazar and aliens. God, the guy's a total skeptic when it comes to some of these wild stories. And, um, but he did do the research into Lazar, and what he found out uh, was that Lazar actually was at the places he said he was at. And they did talk, I mean, they did have a witness in terms of Gene Hoff. I have seen the video. So this is not, this is not, I wasn't there with Lazar, I, I wasn't there with Hoff, um, but I actually saw the video of Lazar and, and, and Lear and Hoff and Jackie, Lazar's wife, going out into the desert and seeing the strange lights because Lazar knew in advance they were testing craft uh, on, I think it was a Wednesday night, and they were testing craft. So I saw the video. So, you know, I, I mean, what can I tell you? If you call seeing the video being an eyewitness, I was an eyewitness. I saw it. So um, uh, this is something that we did in our Area 51 episode, so I just didn't go out to research this Minish Danish. I did it really for the purpose of researching, of just doing the Area 51, episode 13 for UFO hunters. And, yeah, we, we actually saw the video. So, so the fact is I, I do believe Lazar's story, and I actually do believe Lazar's story, that element 115. And I believe the story that, I believe the, the technology, I don't know whether the, the working model, and I want to say working model, it, it's the model that John Lear has. I don't know that, how accurate that is, but I just know that the principle behind it makes sense, that using an element that basically breaks down and combined with another element actually adds electrons to it, so it reformulates, and then in that uh, transference process, the energy released by that level of um, fission and then fusion generates so much of a, of a power wave that they're able to actually suck space and time through it. So it's not as though they're moving through space. Space is moving through it. And if, all, and if the special relativity theory is correct, then what they're able to do is bend time as well. So they're not traveling 
a million light years. You know, one of the big arguments that Seth Shostak from SETI always makes, and he made it to us, he said, Bill, why in the world would these creatures travel seven million light years to abduct this couple in New Hampshire? Yeah, come on, get real. Well, my argument is they didn't travel seven million years. Seven million light years traveled through them, and uh, they were able to do it faster than the speed of time. And the fact is we know that there are speeds. We know, at least mathematically, there are speeds faster than the speed of light because the whole theory of non-locality is premised on instant transmission because if one quanta flips, Another quanta flips, and that could be millions of light years away. So we know that the speed of light is capable of being traversed, and we know that the speed of thought is faster than the speed of light. So all I'm saying is that these traditional theories simply fall away when you get to kind of like a postmodern physics. Uh, mm, uh, you're, ooh, I feel the stench of pop physics around me. Ooh. Eee. I, I, do you guys smell it? Do you smell the pop physics? Listen, I'm not a physicist. Bill, you're not. Gene, you're not. This idea that uh, there is some kind of direct observation of something, anything, chicken livers, uh, salami sandwiches at millions of light years of separation that they both register and events simultaneously. Uh, 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 no, sorry. So, I don't think we've... so you are not you are a, a skeptic when it comes to the theory of non-locality. What I'm saying is that there is a huge differential, okay? And again, this is like when I hear people talk about quantum mechanics and equate that to the idea that you can control the most minute aspects of physicality based on intention and somehow then tie that to quantum mechanics. I'm saying, and I know there are a few listeners of this show that are probably smiling right now as I say this, I'm saying that when we start to bring this stuff up, and use it to then prop up something else. I think this is where we leave the realm of science. No, and I now disagree. We, I well, totally disagree, and I'll tell go you right why. ahead. All right. Here's why I disagree. First of all, I disagree with your premise that we're propping up something else. What I'm saying is there is a correlation to this. It's you know, let's say that Lazar were kind of like a cult leader talking about you can use your mind, and he's like the Napoleon Hill of physics, if you know what I mean. Thinking rich. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I mean, if that were the case, you'd be absolutely right. But we're not. We're saying that aspects of what Lazar is saying actually have been, in, in many respects, tested and uh, validated. For example, you cannot dispute the fact, no person at this stage can dispute some of the material that's turned up in the remote viewing history that Harold Putoff wrote, that Eric Davis has written, that other people in the remote viewing program wrote about as there being the ability to travel inside of some, I keep saying, that this is a, a platonic realm, right? It is Plato's world of the forms, that somehow these remote viewers are able to, to travel in this, in this and as a result see things. So there's kind of like a super, there's a kind of like a super reality. And I think that's more platonic. Uh, all right, um, so let's draw, let's okay, draw a line so in the sand. Hold on, hold on. Whoa, 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 before you do that, Bill, I'll just say one thing, all right? I'm in agreement with that statement. I believe that there's a good probability, not even a possibility, but a probability that this is something that has occurred, that people have had that experience, that they 
that they can go to that place. But what I dispute is the idea that this is something that human beings in their current state of evolution have learned to control. Ah, I agree with you in part, not entirely, but in part on the, on the word control. I disagree with you on the word experience, because I believe that human beings in this current state of human evolution have had the ability to experience it. Oh, no. I, yeah, no, no, no. Exper- no I'm, I, okay, fine. Okay, I'm, now. No, we're, we're on the same page with that, but oh, to okay. control so it I, with so predictable our, results. Mm. Our disagreement might be over control, and I think there is more of a disagreement over the meaning of control than over the, the concept of control, and here's what I mean. I think that Paul Smith, who wrote uh, in the book Reading the Enemy's Mind at, at Forge Books, you know, a couple, a few years ago, and, you know, I mean, um, the book that George and I were working in the light, I think what we've, at least in that book, I documented various kinds of experiments, some done, um, written up in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, JSE, uh, in which people with subjects tested with various forms of frontal lobe damage, so they didn't have the ability to perceive information from the everyday world because they were inhibited. They were, you could say they were handicapped. Those individuals were able to exert their intentionality, were able to exert their volition over what cards would come up in a shuffled deck. So you had a control group, you had people shuffling the deck, knowing what cards were on top, and yet a group of individuals, read this for yourself, it's in the JSE, were able beyond statistical, prob- statistical probability to control what cards were able to come up in the deck and scientists, this was in Canada, they were like blown away. You have people who are so attuned to remote viewing, I would say, and we talked to them yesterday at History Channel, I was there for a meeting the other day, uh, about Kreskin. I believe he is a remote viewer and uh, very highly attuned to it. And one of the things Paul Smith wrote about training Army remote viewers, he said, look, learning to remote view on some level but remote viewing to me is a paradigm-changing thing. To remote view on some level, that's like playing chopsticks on the piano. To some degree, every single human being is able to do some form of remote viewing. I mean, in some form. Minor, right? I mean, you could do it every day. There are some individuals who are absolutely gifted, just like the difference between a Mozart and somebody playing chopsticks, who are able to do this with such acuity that it is frightening. I think that Kreskin is that kind of a person. There were others in the remote viewing program who could exercise that. Paul Smith, in his own right, in his own way, all the way back in the 1980s, was able, was in a training mission sent by Ed Dames. I know, I know, I know. And even Paul kind of raises questions about him. But by Ed Dames to train, actually saw two things, neither of which were happening when he saw them. He remote viewed what he said, what, what eventually turned out to be a silkworm missile attack, uh, an Exocet missile attack on the USS Stark by the Iraqis. Remember that one, where we lost a whole bunch of people when uh, the Exocet missile went. The Iraqis apologized, but um, that was one. He saw that 48 hours before it took place, and that's one reason the Army freaked out over what they had in their remote viewing program. Documented. Go read the book. Then the other thing was he also said, "My God, I'm." He wrote down that he was like, "It's a UFO. It's flying saucer." Well, he saw a flying saucer over Saturn's moon Cassini. 
25 years, 25 plus years later, that turned out to be exactly the case. Only it was our UFO, our flying saucer, it was Huygens descending to the surface of Cassini. So this guy remote viewed, in one case 48 hours in the future, in another case over a quarter of a century into the future to see something. Now, I believe this is documented because the notes are there. They, he, he prints them. And it's also in UFO Magazine, by the way. You can get that issue at ufomag.com. He actually has the notes. Oh, we printed his notes and his sketches from that time. My point is, if he can do that, what a phenomenal ability that is. He's not a witch. He's not a warlock. He's an everyday guy. He was an Army major, a workaday Army officer who fought in Gulf War I. The fact is, he did it. And that is paradigm changing to me. And I will beat that drum as long as I can because that says to me a lot of other things are possible. So when you talk about being able to exercise control as opposed to experience, I think, Dave, your definition that our disagreement over control and experience is far narrower. It's a very thin border and not a huge divide there. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net this is leslie kane and i'm with the coalition for freedom of information and you are listening to the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney there we are talking to bill burns of ufo hunters tv show and UFO Magazine, and we're talking about paradigm changes. What do you think, David? I have no comment. <laughs> Let's kind of move even further into some of this speculation here, okay? Okay. All right. So we're talking about remote viewing. We're suggesting here that Bob Lazar and maybe even John Lear are possibly the real thing. Okay. I still, okay. however... Can't get my head wrapped around the time travel. John Lear is the real what? This is the same John Lear that has publicly stated that uh, Jeff Ritzman and myself are NSA operatives. If we're going to make that assumption, you know what? Then I'm done with the Paracast. See you guys later. Uh, your name came up on some list. Oh, no, no. It was David just list. left. He walked away. David walked away. How do you yeah. know he walked away? He just disconnected. Oh, okay. Well... What can I tell you? Let okay. me just kind of phrase what David is upset about. He's upset about the fact that Lear calls him and Jeff Ritzman NSA operatives, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, how can we take this guy seriously if he comes up with nonsense like that? That's perfect nonsense. 
I don't think that David is an NSA operative. I would think that he's the furthest thing from an NSA operative you can imagine. Um, as far as Jeff Ritzman is concerned, I, you know, Jeff is a really good guy. And I think the Jeff story, I would love to get Jeff to write the story for the magazine for me because I think he's got this fantastic story. He told it to me. He told it on the Paracast. Uh, told it on Jeremy Zaney's radio show, radio podcast, of the time these guys, these men in black, were you know telling him to lay off writing and studying uh, about abduction experiences and UFOs. So I, I certainly don't think that Jeff Ritzman is NSA or Dave. But on the other hand, where I disagree is uh, with Dave and this is somebody can say something completely outrageous and I've had that experience I gotta tell you I, I've had that experience uh, uh, with Corso we're in in the process of saying something and doing something fighting back and forth you actually make an outrageous statement and in making the outrageous statement do you then throw out the baby with the bathwater and my attitude is no yeah but the problem I think we have with this is if somebody like that comes up with this an outrageous statement, that tends to shed negative light on the rest of what that person says. I agree with that. I certainly agree with that. And so I completely recognize, by the way, that this person said something outrageous. Uh, I, I can't abide by it. I'm upset by it. Um, I, I want to walk away. I want to deal with it. Everything this person says now is suspect. So if, if John Lear says that I'm an NSA operative and Jeff Richmond's an NSA operative, nothing this person says, not only does nothing this person can say have any validity to me, I mean, like, I am like, I'm done with it, okay? I'm not an NSA operative. It's, out, it's crazy, okay? So here's where I, I totally agree with Dave Biedney on this. However, it's the absoluteness of that that I have a problem with because I then say are there things that can be independently I'm not saying validated to 100% substantiation but are there stories that other people say where he was and there's some kind of independent corroboration of that well the answer is of course yes I mean he's not saying anything different than what Bob Lazar said you could dispute Bob Lazar but then you've got the video of John Lear and Bob Lazar with their cameras out in the desert by Area 51 seeing craft. And you've got the whole George Knapp validation of actually finding Bob Lazar's name in the Alamogordo records. So the fact is, independent corroboration. It has nothing to do with whatever John said about um, Dave Biedney and, and Jeff Ritzman. That's important. I'd be scathed, too. And before Dave went away, I would tell him about things that people said about Corso and me that really, I mean, I went crazy about that. At least, at least, at least, although I've been accused of being a CIA operative like Dave, you know, he and I share one big thing. They think of me, a lot of people in the community say, oh, well, because of Corso, because the way Corso died, because of the lawsuit, I'm really, I was sent by the CIA to debunk Corso and eventually killed him. But and isn't that, it also true that there are government disinformation agents who've been involved in the UFO mystery from course, time I mean, immemorial. Identified them, and they identified themselves as such. I mean, Carl Flock said he was working in the community and he was a CIA guy, right? He actually said that and there are records that confirm that. There have been times, I mean, we see this all the time. Of course, Carl Flock isn't around anymore to confirm or deny that. That's true. But 
look at other people in the community who come up with these stories, and people say, this is disinformation. This is, uh, look at, um, what's this, uh, Steve Bassett's ex-conference, which a lot of people said was kind of a showcase for disinformation specialists. What do you think? I mean, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Okay, but that's let's bring that point. Okay, let's talk okay. about the disclosure movement and Steve okay. Bassett because he is somebody heavily involved in that, heavily vested in that. Do you think he's a disinformation agent? I don't think in any way, Steve. I mean, okay, here's why I don't think Steve Bassett is a disinformation agent. He has no information to disinform us about. What does Steve Bassett have to say? I mean, he's a friend of mine. We publish him in the magazine. Dave and I had a great little session with Bassett, which turned up on Jeremy Vaney's podcast. But the bottom line is this. Steve Bassett has no information. He's got information from Grant Cameron about presidents and UFOs, and I think he potentially has a great book with Grant Cameron about all the presidents UFOs. I'd love to publish that book. I'd love to represent that book. However, I'd love to excerpt that book in UFO magazine. But the point is, he hasn't done anything with it. It kind of just sits there. And a lot of it is Grant Cameron's own phenomenal research and Steve Bassett's conversations with various officials about the relationship between presidents and their administrative staffs and UFOs. I think that Alfred uh, Lamont Weber, right? That, forget his middle name, but Weber also how Labramont Weber. Alfred, uh, he has a lot of information about his own experience inside the Jimmy Carter administration with Director of Domestic Policy um, Stu Eisenstadt on coming up with some sort of a protocol for alien visitation. Um, similarly, Rich Dolan has a phenomenal amount of information from government documents about encounters that our government acknowledges with some kind of extraterrestrial presence or at least a paranormal UFO presence. Okay, So Steve Bassett's being in that pool is shared information, kind of a collective UFO consciousness, right? But in terms of what Steve Bassett himself has to say, there is no information. All Steve Bassett is doing is saying, hey, let's disclose. President Obama, let's disclose. President McCain, let's disclose. Tell us about UFOs, which will never happen, by the way. By the way, that's an important point, too. From mm -hmm. the 1950s, we had Major Donald Kehoe, who mm -hmm. said, they have information, they know UFOs are spaceships, the silence group needs to disclose. If we just ask Congress to investigate, they'll take care of it. Of course, he was very naive about the political situation then, and anyone who believes that now would also be naive. They had hearings in the 60s. We got the Condon Report. Right. Didn't do anything. Didn't do squat. The Condon Report was disinformation. Michael Swords actually showed me the letter from the Air Force to Condon saying, we need you to get rid of UFOs as, 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 as some kind of issue for us because you want to be out of the blue book business. Go talk to Michael Swords. He'll show you the letter. Okay. Before we go into more letters. Okay, neighbors, did you know that food will make your future fearless? You know, we're going to have runaway inflation with all of these bailouts. And if you don't understand why, you better check it out or your life may depend on it. Before runaway inflation occurs, smart people are converting their paper money into gold and now gold into food. We've seen runaway inflation in other countries. The only way to survive is to buy things and stuff that we'll need later while the money and gold still have value. When a truckload of cash or several pounds of gold won't buy a loaf of bread, the only answer is to already have your own bread. 
Folks don't realize that with the worldwide famine and food shortages, food is about to become so precious that will actually establish the value of gold until there is no food left at any price. Food will make your future fearless. Call 800-715-4380 or go on the web to efoodsdirect.com. Call 800-715-4380 or efoodsdirect.com. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.airyradio.com. On the PowerCast, we have Bill Burns of UFO Magazine and the UFO Hunters TV show. And we're trying to figure out exactly what's going on with this disinformation. What about this guy, Rick Doty, whose name keeps cropping up around the UFO field year after year? Rick Doty came forward. Now, again, he's written on Project Serpo for UFO Magazine. And, again, I just want to say this because I know that Dave gets freaked out when you say Project Serpo. So it's like UFO Magazine is not a censor. We don't censor information. It's a magazine. The point of a magazine is to publish publish stories that people want to read. Serpo's false, fine. Somebody come up and tell me Serpo's false. Somebody's true, kind. Somebody come up and tell me it's true. Okay? Um, I don't care about Project Serpo. What I care about is that uh, Rick Doty was one of the people talking about Serpo, and he wrote for us in the magazine about it. But Rick Doty also goes on Art Bell and says, yes, I'm the famous Rick Doty who's a disinformation specialist, and guess what I did? I really worked on Linda Moulton Howe. We really drove Paul Benowitz crazy. Read the great Greg Bishop book on Paul Benowitz. That's what they did. Now, <laughs> you know, one thing Rick- I have to ask about that, if Rick Doty is telling us the truth, he did all mm-hmm. this disinformation, wouldn't the government say, Rick, shut your mouth? Of course. And you want to say to Rick, wait a minute, are you lying now just like you're lying then? I mean, the fact is, he, he comes up and says, I'm a liar. But believe me now, you don't know what to believe. I think that Rick is perfectly happy where he is. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling my story. This is it. Wrote a book. And um, I told my story. And why would the government allow this guy to speak? Well, for a whole bunch of reasons why they would allow him to speak. One, he could be still disinforming. So he's still doing the same job he did 20, 25, 30 years ago, right? No change. He's just changed the disinformation to admit that he's doing disinformation. That's on the one hand. On the other hand... And his disinformation admission is disinformation. That's right. Okay. On the other hand, there are the larger questions, who cares, right? Who cares that this guy is telling the story now? I mean, what does it have to do about a sighting in Brazil or a sighting in Venezuela or Mexico? What does that have to do with it? It has nothing to do with Charles Dubach or Ray Bowyer or Betty and Barney Hill, right? It's simply he, he is tangential to the entire history of UFOs. Again, in the documents that Richard Dolan and Grant Cameron have uncovered in their interviews, I mean, you see 
as clear as can be, the story of UFOs in America. So, so why would what Rick Doty says have any bearing on that, okay? He's able to drag Linda Moulton. How around? I think that there are people who are kind of like killer satellites in the community. That when somebody gets close to saying something, and it's not that UFOs are real, because quite frankly, given the hundreds of thousands of people that have, that have had UFO sightings, even some of those who believe they're UFOs and they're really helicopters, given the hundreds of thousands of people who report on this, I think there's no doubt that people are seeing something strange, okay? So, and the video. I mean, I've seen the video. I've seen incredible videos. From, you, you'll see them yourself this season on UFO Hunters of craft in the sky, and we've done some incredible analysis on those videos. I wish David were there to have done it. I would have loved to have David do it, but the fact is we did some really great, and things like the Rex Heflin photos, things like some photos from Tim Lee Park and from Millstadt, Illinois, turn out to be unbelievably compelling. Well, given that, who cares about a Rick Doty, but disinformation specialists exist for the purpose of when somebody gets frighteningly close to something that could actually be disturbing coming up and finding ways to lead that person away with a shiny object or lead that person into a trap or lead that person into something someplace far more deadly. I think those people exist, and I think that they do their jobs. They permeate the UFO community. And I, I keep on beating the drum on this, too, that there's a far bigger secret to UFOs and an alien. An alien could be time people as well as extraterrestrial people. Presence that is far more threatening to the status quo than anyone really believes or knows. And I think that's why that um, Steve Bassett, notwithstanding, Michael Sauer, notwithstanding, that I think given all that, what, what you will eventually see is that the government ha is not going to be in, this, in the disclosure business ever. They don't have to be. They won't be. It's better to have speculation than have disclosure. And I think whether it's a Barack Obama or John McCain or Hillary Clinton or whatever, you will not see Joe Biden in, like, Mr. Gaff come up and say, oh, yeah, well, that UFO we found, well, that really didn't have that stuff in it, so never mind. Not going to have it. Well, that's the promise we always have. You know, the next president will do it. Jimmy Carter had a UFO sighting. Ronald Reagan may have been interested in UFOs or seen a UFO. It never happens. Jimmy Carter never happens. We always have this promise but the secret is still being kept. Whatever secret there is, the secret may indeed be, hey, guys, you know what? We don't know what's going on. Well, the difference is, here's the secret. I mean, it's, it's, I've heard from enough people on the inside that there is an office in the Pentagon, which is a special access project, Air Force office. Part of that project, it's run by one of the assistant secretaries. Part of that project is kind of overseeing whatever research is being done, and it's really kind of, it's not front burner research. Whatever's done with one of the aircraft companies has flying saucer. Okay, that's the basis of it. And every few years, they bring together a bunch of people from the community, scientists, basically academicians, some kind of ethicists, who have spoken out internally for UFO disclosure. Remember, in 1966, or in the 60s, 
after the 1960s Hilldale, Michigan UFO landings, remember the people saying, I saw UFOs, I saw a creature, all over Hilldale, the whole Hilldale area, who spoke up and wrote to Mendel Rivers, who was House Armed Services? Jerry Ford. Jerry Ford demanded congressional hearings into, and this is when the Air Force was still doing Project Blue Book, demanded hearings into these as a defense issue. Well, Jerry Ford eventually became president. And what did Jerry Ford do even before he became president? This is after he was on the Warren Commission. I mean, Jerry Ford basically comes out and admits to everybody, guess what, everybody? I changed the Warren Commission autopsy report on Jack Kennedy to comport with the single bullet theory. He admits that, okay? So here's a guy who, while he's calling for disclosure of UFOs or investigation of UFOs, as president does absolutely nothing about a disclosure of UFOs, winds up having to confront two assassination attempts by people from the, uh, from the Manson family, and winds up admitting that uh, all the way back in 63, he, he was part of the uh, JFK assassination cover-up. He admits it. So, I mean, but here's a guy who actually called for UFO investigation. So obviously something happens to you when somebody sits you down and says, you are now POTUS, you are now the President of the United States, and here is what you will do, and here is what you will not do. And top on the list of what you will not do is talk about the Kennedy assassination, and you will not talk about, because presidents like to talk about assassinations, they're, they're like funny about that. And here's what you will not do, you will not talk about flying saucers, right? If you do talk about flying saucers, we will find a way to diminish the impact of your presidency and that's what happened to jimmy carter and what did ronald reagan do? okay wait a minute wait a minute find a way to diminish the impact of the presidency so jimmy carter is considered to have had a failed presidency Correct. so you're saying that because of his interest in ufos desire to bring the subject to the public light this hurt what he could do in what way I'm saying that Jimmy Carter's inability to deal with our own United States military, you're talking about a guy, I mean, given the book he just wrote, uh, you're talking about a guy who is an Annapolis graduate who worked in the United States nuclear submarine program under Hyman Rickover, which is maybe why he had a problem with the last book he just wrote, and uh, worked with Hyman Rickover. And, I mean, here's a guy who basically made such a fundamental mistake in dealing with the Iranians. I mean, a mistake of such magnitude proportions, which, by the way, again turns up in UFO Hunters this season in the Cash Landrum episode, where he actually allowed a, a military extraction procedure to go forward in Iran without, I mean, this is a guy who went to Annapolis. The, the Navy SEALs exist, the Army Green Berets exist, Special Forces, everything else, the different units. They didn't know that helicopters without night vision goggles could not operate at night in a black, black, black desert, that helicopter rotor blades would throw sand up, that the motors of the helicopter, I mean, come on. He made this fundamental thing. What I'm saying is that uh, the Jimmy Carter found ways to undermine his presidency at every single level, and I think that some things were out of his control like the October surprise, George Bush saying, hold the hostages until we take office, like the October surprise, uh, and which, by the way, John there was a part of, he says, and uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency ends on the sour, sour note. Am I saying he failed every minute of his presidency? No. I'm saying that somebody in a position of great power, i.e. George Bush, was able to find a way to hand Carter this military defeat 
at the end of his presidency, I think it was partly personal. And what's the interaction between Jimmy Carter and George Bush? Jimmy Carter asked George Bush in early 1977 to please give him the lowdown on the CIA's knowledge of UFOs. And George Bush says to Jimmy Carter, Mr. President-elect, you have absolutely no need to know. But then George Bush gives Jimmy Carter a blueprint through the National Archives to get the same information, which Jimmy Carter doesn't use, but instead turns to Alfred Lattermont Weber to go ahead and open up an exopolitics protocol, which the Pentagon then has to shut down because they threaten SRI's, Stanford Research Institute's budget. Uh, in dealing with UFOs. I mean, this may sound totally convoluted, and the answer is it does sound totally convoluted. And conspiratorial, convoluted. too, that George Bush Sr. helped to bring down the presidency of Jimmy Carter? Absolutely. And I'm saying that H. Ross Perot helped bring down the second-term presidency of George H.W. Bush because when Ronald Reagan wanted to mount an effort to free Vietnam-era POWs being held in Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia, he asked Ross Perot to spearhead that, right? Because Ross Perot had already freed people in Southeast Asia, and it was George H.W. Bush who, who torpedoed that inside the administration, getting Ross Perot so mad that he ran against Bush in 1992 and made Bill Clinton the first minority president ever elected in American history. Interesting how this all relates to the UFOs. Obviously, people are going to ask, how do we know this? Well, we know this for a couple of ways. One, um, I was working on a motion picture about POWs. I talked to Jim Sanders, who wrote the Flight 800 book. Um, Chip Beck, who worked in DPMA on POW wishes. They will tell you that the issue of Vietnam-era POWs probably destroyed uh, or at least affected in negative ways five or so successive presidencies until Bill Clinton normalized relations with the Vietnam in 1993, by the way, with John Kerry, in the hopes that he would simply put that whole matter to rest. There are people from the POW era that are still living in Vietnam, but they have lives, they have families. This happened in World War II, happened in Korea, happened again in Vietnam. So these are American soldiers who were captured in Vietnam? Correct. Okay, so basically they were assimilated into the Vietnamese society. Yeah, they would never get out. They were assimilated, just like Korea. I mean, there may be, there may not be, but I know that for a while... During the Clinton administration, at least one person reported to uh, uh, the Koreans wanted to give back some of the people that they were still holding after the Korean War, and Clinton administration said no. Is this a Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing? No, it's not. It's we don't want them back. We don't want them back because in part they've been assimilated. In part, do you want to admit that you let your POW stay in a foreign country under prison conditions for 50 years in the 1990s? An American Army sergeant went to the American consulate in Siberia, this is after Glasnost, went to the American consulate in Siberia, gave his name, his, he was in a gulag, and he gave his name, rank, and serial number and told his experience, and the American said, go back to the gulag, we don't want you. Can you imagine that? This is the deep, dark secret. Do we have any proof, any physical proof anywhere you would ask me. That We're jumping around to a lot of things here. First, we have the UFO mystery bringing down presidencies, and now we have prisoners of war becoming part of the society that captured That's it. right. And I'm saying, is there physical proof? And the answer is yes. In the Eisenhower Library, in the 1990s, researchers discovered the Eisenhower finding under Little Switch, Big Switch, saying that we were acknowledging the fact that North 
Korea is not returning American POWs. It's in writing. And who's the person whose name is on that document in Eisenhower's own handwriting? Pass to Corso. Here we go with Corso again. Now, some of the skeptics of Corso, because we always get back to Corso. Why do we always get back to Corso? Say that he inflated some of the things he did for his own ego towards the end of his life. That might have been a possibility. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying he did. I'm not saying he didn't. I, toward the end of his life, Corso and I were in litigation because he sued the movie company. And in suing the, uh, he sued the movie company. This is how Paula Harris got involved. Because in suing the movie company for getting his rights back and for more money, basically, since I represented the book, I was obviously part of that lawsuit. And so basically, had, then you had a falling out with Corso. No, he had a falling out with me. All right. Either way, the movie will never happen. That's not true. The movie may happen because now Phil Jr. and his lawyer and myself are now the final, at the end of the day, after all the dust is settled, we are now the rights holders to all that material. What does Phil Jr. think about the things his father wrote in that book and the other stuff that he put together and related to UFOs? Phil was, on one level, totally shocked. Because he said that he didn't know that his father was doing this. This was, this was back going back to 1996, 1997, early when we met. And he said, I didn't know he was doing this stuff. I knew he was involved in secret stuff, and I knew he couldn't talk about the stuff he was involved in. And I knew that he said to me that he saw stuff that I wouldn't believe, but he's not going to tell me about it, because if he told me about it, then my life would be in jeopardy. So, I mean, that's, that was Phil Jr.'s explanation for why he wasn't. He said, All right, my father kept it from us. He didn't want us to know. He said it was a secret that was such a threat to us. Were we to be in, he said people would, would actually ask him, who have you told? And he could say, in all honesty, I told no one. That was one. Then years later, he, he began to talk about what he suspected about what his father was doing. And of course, Phil, Phil is funny because he's got this real uncanny ability with, with various kinds of machines. So I suspect that there might have been some backstory about what his father was doing, some backstory about alien contact. I just know that it's something that kind of raises you know, my suspicions about the extent of what Phil might have known or not known, but he has not denied anything his father ever said or did, ever. Phil Jr., what does he do for a living? Phil um, builds light aircraft. Okay. He, he, he builds ultralights. He's an unbelievably phenomenal mechanic. He understands engines to agree that to a degree that's almost spooky. Because it was funny. Now this is kind of common, but I was complaining to Phil about, gee, you know, this diesel engine on my boat. I don't know. Phil says, start your engine right now. Start your engine. Started the engine. He got it started. He had started. He says, okay, fine. Now he says, put your dipstick in the blank and look for a blank. He says, now hold your. And he says, turn your dipstick upside down. Tell me how fast the oil is running down. And I tell him, he's okay, fine. Your oil's okay, fine. Shut your engine off. It's something else. I mean, now that that could be anybody who works on diesels, on marine diesels. But the point is that he really has absolute confidence of his ability to work on engines, and he builds ultralights, and he builds ultralights for, I mean, ultralights are not the kinds of things that if you're a stock boy at an Albertsons, you're going to buy. These are things that some fairly well-heeled people are going to invest in. It's a way to get into the air without having to go through getting a sport pilot's license, because you don't need a license to fly an ultralight. And that's what he builds for people, and he builds kits, and he does very well at it. So I don't think that, uh, that Phil actually needs this movie to keep uh, food on his table. He's, he's more than capable of doing that himself. Let's look at the coming administrations here. Mm -hmm. And when this show airs, the election will be over. It'll either be McCain or Obama. 
as president, I don't think anything's going to change. Absolutely not. I think either way, neither president, neither candidate now will do anything about UFO disclosure. I think the best chance we had for UFO, for anybody admitting something, would have been President Hillary Clinton. That was the best opportunity we had. That's it. Maybe a President Dennis Kucinich, but I mean, uh, you know, that was such an unlikelihood. But I think she would have been most likely to say something because of the hints that the Clintons have been giving ever since 1992 on, um, on, on UFOs. So you're going back now almost um, 18 years, right, 16 years on this. And um, you've got Bill Clinton saying, well, you know, I want to find out the truth about UFOs and gets Webb Hubble to um, try to investigate. And I think that's another reason that Scaife and a few others were really put up to um, diminish his presidency as much as possible. He broke the code. The code is you don't talk about UFOs. The secret is so big, so vast, so paradigm-changing, so huge that it will impact organized government in a way that will make life very difficult for everybody and maybe bring down society. It could be history changing at this juncture, which is why if there are aliens here, and I believe there are, and if they look like us, and I believe they do, and they're in, in positions of power, I believe they are, then they're going to well, We're raising a lot of things here, and I want to get into them in a moment. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hey, this is Jeff Richmond. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on The Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. We have one more session to do with Bill Burns. He is the publisher of UFO Magazine, one of the hosts of the History Channel's UFO Hunters. So, okay, let's talk about this now. Human, aliens, 
in positions in government. That's the ultimate conspiracy theory. You believe that? Why? Yes, yes, I absolutely do. I do believe that. I, th I think human aliens is a misnomer. I think, look, I said this in the last episode of UFO Hunters, and I'll say it again. We have met E.T., and it is us. All right. Explain what you mean other than maybe we're descended from E.T.'s. I think we were seated here by E.T.'s. I think if you look at all the literatures, it, it, even the Bible, even Genesis, describes the seeding of planet Earth. Uh, I believe that there are other species on planet Earth uh, besides us. I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm going to go into the woods of Washington and find some Bigfoot feces somewhere and bring it back to a 7-Eleven and put it on display. But what I'm saying is that I do believe there are other species that occupy planet Earth, that, that planet Earth is far more complex than we think. I would even speculate. I don't know this for a fact. I'm not saying they exist. I'm not a big David Icke fan, David whatever. He's not a big Bill Burns fan, you can imagine. But or a more Chaim Kaplan fan, but I believe that it's more than it is within the within the realm of possibility that you know how many ever millions of years ago, as the Earth's climate began to change and began to change rapidly, that reptiles or some species of dinosaur or something looking for a warmer, more humid climate that existed on planet Earth that was habitable found their way deeper and deeper into the planet toward the center of the earth where they were able to flourish, maybe not in huge numbers, flourish, develop, become somehow sapiens, and that may explain the presence of reptilians on this planet. Did they interbreed with human beings to create George Bush? No, I don't think so, but um, I do believe... <laughs> But I do believe that's certainly in the realm of possibility and that the various reptilian creatures that have manifested themselves over the centuries, both in religious literature, the talking snake in, in the Bible, uh, in Genesis, and in, um, and in other forms, I think have a basis in reality, uh, have, have a basis in, in, in the past. And I think that the strange footprints that have been found in sediments of the earth where dinosaurs only existed, you know, I, 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 I'm beginning to think that, uh, that there is kind of a big planet of the apes secret down there with respect to um, reptiles. So, so, so that's one. But I believe that we were seated. I believe that various interactions, remember the story of uh, giants. Giants don't have to be eight feet tall, by the way. You know, we say they're eight feet, nine feet, ten feet tall. Giants can be just big. What if Neanderthals were huge in their stockiness? And the story, remember in Genesis, right after, right after, um, at the end of Adam and Eve, right before Noah, it says in Genesis that the sons of Adam and Eve, and by the way, only, only one of whom became human beings that exist today, but the sons of Adam and Eve mated with the daughters of men. Does that not sound like to you somehow Cro-Magnons and Neanderthals getting together and saying, hey, let's, uh, let's party down? So, so I, I, I think that's all there. And I think that um, we were seated. I think, I think that's pretty clear. Even Crick, Sir Francis Crick and Watson, even they and their panspermia theory believe that the various planets were seeded with some sort of human um, DNA. Now, it doesn't mean that the Starship Enterprise came over and beamed down a bunch of children to planet Earth and said, here, be fruitful and multiply. I think that what really happened was that various planets were seeded with the um, elements of what became 
today's Homo sapiens. I believe that uh, even Seth Shostak, so we're sitting in, in Bernie, in California, at this new Allen array of radio telescopes, and so we're having the usual debate we have about UFOs and flying saucers. And, and finally, Seth Shostak uh, pipes up with, Bill, for God's sakes, why are you looking around for flying saucers? We're the ETs. I said, really? He says, yeah, where do you think we came from? We're from Mars. Chunks of Mars broke off, fell to Earth, came into the oceans. We're the ETs. Look at me. I'm your ET. Seth Shostak, big skeptic. Okay, so we're ETs. You've seen the ETs and they is us. Mm-hmm. Okay, where did I come from? came from Pogo. Pogo. That's right. So we are the ETs, or therefore... Are they here to just watch over us or what? I think, as I said earlier, I think what we're dealing with is a story much like probably one of the greatest science fiction works ever written, Foundation and Empire, at least the initial three volumes were, in which there was a plan. And that plan was for some psychohistory, a manifestation of history in which various possibilities have to be mitigated because chance can always intervene and screw things up. And I think that once, I th if, if a UFO crashed in Roswell and we came into possession of an alien which I, or an android, which I believe we did, then I think that that affected the timeline in ways that it shouldn't. Sure, Kenneth Arnold sees flying crescents over Mount Rainier, who cares? Yes, Fred Crisman says to Harold Dahl, let's get your story about those flying donuts you saw. Let's turn it into an even bigger story. There's your confabulation right there. So let's say all, all that happens. It doesn't matter. They're simply speculative stories. You might as well talk about witches and warlocks and angels and things like that, okay, which probably did exist. But once you have a, a piece of debris, and Walter Hout says he went out to the desert, he picked up a piece of flying saucer junk and put it on his desk as a, as a piece of memorabilia, and they said, no, no, Lieutenant, it's going to Carswell Air Force Base, you can't have it, and they took it away. There's a case where there was debris. Once you have that, then I think you've got a problem, because now you've got to go to work and affect the timeline. And so what do you do? And it's kind of like, you know, the very famous Sir Walter Scott line from Marmion, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we manage to deceive. So once you affect the timeline, once you do that, now you've got to repair it. Then you've got to repair the repairs. So whether this was by design or by chance or an ongoing volitional thing, I think we are locked in a kind of a time loop with entities that are really ourselves that, and here's what I was going to get to with this George Hoover character from the Office of Naval Intelligence who investigated the Philadelphia experiment, is that George Hoover said to us after Corso's death, don't you know that there's a bigger secret that we're just a bunch of flying saucers hanging around? Nobody really could give a damn. I mean, hey, it's flying saucer. Parts as parts, you know? I mean, we can't control it. That's not the issue. It's once you yank on that thread, once you begin to unravel the thread of what our government knows and what it's dealt with and what it's dealing with on an ongoing basis, once you do that, this guy was the Navy's course owner. He is real historical character. By Ivan Sanderson wrote about this guy in his book on time travel. And Ivan Sanderson was no slouch. Let once me throw you, something out here because we don't have a lot of time left. Sure. And that is... People say, how could we possibly keep all this stuff a secret? And then we it's learn. It's not a secret. Let's go into that. We learned, for example, very recently that some people who were fairly famous or quite famous ended up 
as spies in World War II. There were spies in World War II, and we didn't know about it until the past year. Kept right. a secret. So they can't uh, keep secrets. Let's tell the audience who they were. Okay, well, we found out, by the way, that our own CIA... Well, one of the famous people, by the way, was a person who gave away the secret of the atomic bomb to Stalin and then blamed it on the Rosenbergs, who were falsely accused, falsely convicted, and falsely executed. Okay? So we know that. This very famous researcher, I think it was from Harvard, who was actually working for Stalin and believed in, in he was a one-worlder, and I'm not a big globalization fan. He was a one-worlder and really believed that, you know, if everybody had the same nuclear secrets, hey, it's in the open, hey, have a nice day, this is great, life is good, let's all, y'all you know, give the world a Coke. He gave away the secrets, and then they blamed it on the Rosenbergs. They wouldn't blame it on him. He was too high up. We just found that out in the records. So everybody knew that the Rosenbergs were being marched to their death, led by Roy Cohen, I must say, being marched to their death falsely. That's one big thing. Other big thing, the big, big friend of John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Dulles, hey, Kim Philby and the whole Cambridge group, who were they? KGB. CIA brought to you by the KGB. Yeah. But you did say, though, you don't think it's so much keeping it a secret as flooding, and I think you've said this before, flooding us with so much disinformation that Absolutely. we can't separate the wheat from the chaff. Look, also, we talked about this, and that is UFOs are just like serial killers. They're both in plain sight. Who told us what the best way was to hide something? Edgar Allan Poe in the Purloined Letter. In plain sight, if you don't know what you're looking at, when you're looking at, you will never scream UFO. The big danger is the more people realize it's a UFO, because they watch UFO hunters and read UFO magazine and listen to the podcast, the more people who say it's a UFO, that's the more danger of the secret getting out. So you flood the airways with more and more derision. So you have various commentators on the Certainly Not News Network. Those great commentators talking you know, laughing at UFOs. Hey, it's a UFO. You guys are all nuts. Even though, and you'll see this too on UFO hunters, in the O'Hare Airport case, the very person, the very air traffic controller who stared into our camera and said, guys, I couldn't see the UFO. There was no UFO over United Terminal C-17 is on the air tower tapes, FAA tapes, saying let's divert traffic around C-17 because there's a report of a UFO. That doesn't help. Hey, we have just enough time for you to tell us where we can see UFO hunters and where we can get UFO magazines. So now that we're in November, tell us about UFO hunters, which is now in its second season. First, I'm sorry, David Biedney, if I offended you by bringing up John Lear. But, you know, I mean, there's some rationale. I was offended when they said I killed Corso, so now we share something. The uh, UFO Hunters is on every Wednesday night, premiering for the next four months on the History Channel. Wednesday nights on the History Channel, on History. They do have reruns through the week, but watch us on a premiere so you get to see the show kind of fresh. Eastern Time, Pacific Time, 10 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Other, for your cable distributor, check your local listings. And uh, I think it's 9 p.m. Central Time. But anyway, check your local listings. That's UFO Hunters. And you can always go to see what's happening on UFO Hunters by going to history.com backslash UFO Hunters or go to www.ufomag.com. 
click on the UFO Hunters icon, and you'll go right to that website. And while you're on UFOMag.com, hey, spend a buck, click on subscribe, and you can get, guess what, six issues for the price of five, special for Paracast listeners, friends of Gene and Dave. Any more books coming out with the name William Burns on the cover? Indeed. I am finishing. There's a book coming out called Journey to the Light that I wrote with George Nori, and that is about personal experiences of people working in the light and their spiritual awakenings coming out in 2009. Space Wars 2, which is now called Counter Space, Bill Scott, Mike Kamatos, and myself wrote the sequel to Space Wars coming out from Forge Books probably toward the end of 2009, maybe early 2010. The very famous Joe Martin from the Amityville Horror Case, who, who first called it a hoax, Joe Martin. Uh, and I have a book out called The Haunting of America, coming out Halloween 2010, two years from now, Haunting of America. It's a paranormal history of the United States of America. It's really a breathtaking book. It's probably going to be an encyclopedia as well as a book, and that's going to be also a television series. And then coming out in late 2009 will be a, a science fiction series that George Noy and I are writing called Nero Blaze Time Traveler. Okay. Bill Burns, thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. Uh, glad to be here, Gene. Um, always wonderful. Uh, David, you know, I did not mean to insult you. Nobody's insulting you. Uh, in fact, nobody knew until you said so that John Lear had called you an operative for the NSA and Jeff Ritzman. Um, nothing could be more impossible. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.